You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another brand new episode of It's My House podcast. I am, of course, as always, your host, Chris Dees, looking a little bit shinier than normal. Today is an incredibly hot day here in England. Um, I am not coping very well at all, um, but I've got a very cool guest with me today, um, the man who needs basically no introduction, but I'm going to give him a short one anyway. As far as I'm concerned, one of the most important superstars of the Attitude Era, because he is literally the man who struck the first blow in terms of WCW's invasion of WWF. He's held titles in ECW, WCW, WWF, countless other places. Worked briefly as a WWE producer as well. Um, and, you know, he is, of course, the one and only Mr. Lance Storm. Lance, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? I'm doing well. Uh, not dealing with as much heat, but we've got smoke from BC wildfires. So uh, our weather Ooh. is problematic here as well. Yeah, no, I, I yeah, I think I'd, I'd rather deal with the heat than, than the smoke. Um it's it's just rare. We don't really very often get days like this in the UK. Maybe like once or twice a year. So it's um we don't know how to cope when it yeah. happens. Obviously, <laughs> is a, a normal thing for you guys in the states. Um, how how are things over in the states now that everything's sort of getting back to normal a little bit more uh, after? I'm not in the states. I'm in Canada. Oh, in Canada, of course. How how have things been over in Canada? Sorry, but they're they're certainly getting better. We're like in Alberta because every province is slightly different. We've pretty much <clears throat> removed all COVID restrictions. Um, our cases are pretty low. Our vaccination rate is really high. I think we've got 76, 77% of the population eligible has got at least one shot. And I think at least a third or half of us have two. So it's, uh, it's getting better. It's just the fingers crossed that we don't get hit with the fourth. Yeah, there's talk about one, isn't there? Maybe happening in the winter. It's it's pretty much the same here now. I think most people have had their at least their first shot. Um, we sort of technically went back to normal two days ago. Face masks are no longer required, so things are getting a little a little bit more back to normal. But is is it ever going to be normal again? Well, yeah. You know, actually, yesterday uh, the Canadian government just sent us a warning of don't go to the UK. <laughs> their cases are going up. Don't go there. <laughs> So there's still, again, our, our, even the Canada-U.S. border is still not completely open. So yeah. there's still a lot of things to deal with, which is why I'm still sitting home in Calgary, Alberta, <laughs> Canada. Yeah, there's all this talk about a new variant and the Indian variant. It's just, just one thing after another. But let's not talk about COVID. We've talked about that too much over the last year and a half. Um, I want to talk to you first of all. Like I said in in the intro, it's been just over twenty years now since um, 
since WCW invaded WF, as I said, you were the man who literally struck the first blow in the invasion. Um, what was it like for you at the time coming into WWF, knowing that you were going to be a part of such a big key focal storyline, but also knowing that, I guess, the, the big hitters from WCW would not be joining you for it? Was there a lot of pressure on, on you guys who did come over to, to really make it work? Well, it, it was weird because you never really knew what everything was going to be until it happened. So it's like, you never really had a chance to think about it. Like, you know, we had the last nitro where, you know, we were told we'd all be given an opportunity. And then, you know, along the way I'm contacted and told that, you know, I'm one of the guys that are going to be employed moving forward. So it's like, great. And then like even the first, you know, the, the kickoff of the invasion, if you will, in Calgary, it's like, I was told I'm just coming down to meet Jim Ross because they were flying all the talent to Connecticut to, you know, your initiation, your orientation type of thing. Yeah. And I just got the call from Johnny, Johnny, uh, Johnny Ace, John Laurinaitis. and was told it's like, we're going to be in Calgary in a week. There's no point in flying you all the way to Connecticut just to sit down and have a two hour meeting with Jim Ross. Just go to raw and you'll have a sit down with him at some point during the day. I'm like, okay. And then, you know, an hour or two before the show starts, I'm told I'm on the show. So it's like, there's no time to think about anything or, you know, and I didn't know for sure if they had the flares and the stings and so forth. Like, you know, you'd read rumors and reports, but it's like, it's not like the company's telling us that, well, these are the 15 people we've hired. These are the people we haven't. So we're really just, as talent flying by the seat of our pants, just trying to do the best you can with what you're given. So it's like, yeah. you know, with that invasion uh, run in, like, I'm just, again, I remember at the time I was very nervous that the crowd would even recognize me in that brief moment. Cause there isn't going to be the music in the Tron where they go, Oh, Hey, that's Lance storm. He's from Calgary. <laughs> it's just, I'm going to run in kick them and run out. And I'm like, are they even going to recognize me? And I honestly wasn't sure. And I'm like, if I don't get a big reaction in my hometown, I'm dead. Yeah. And I think the best illustration for how briefly I was there, I had a buddy. Uh, it was him and his wife and his kids. I got them tickets to come down to the show because he was my training partner at the gym. And he was sitting there with his kids and his wife. And one of his kids dropped... The, like yeah, a really small kid, like a soother or a toy or something. And he bent down to pick it up, heard a really loud pop, sat back up and looked around and went to his wife. It's like, what did I miss? <laughs> and she says, you just missed Lance. And he's like, what? <laughs> so he just bent down to pick something up and completely missed me. So that's how brief of a period of time I was in the ring. Yeah. So there was a legitimate chance that they'd just be like, who's the guy in the ring? But thankfully, the, the crowd responded really well. So it, it saved my bacon, so to speak. Yeah, I remember I remember the pop. I remember, um, I'll be honest, as, as a young guy, I only really watched WWF, so I didn't really know what was happening. I, I, I knew of WCW, didn't really know, other than like, the top, top names. I didn't really know too much of what was going on on that side. But um, 
did it at least give you a little bit of comfort that you were in Canada? So at least you had potential to be recognized? Did that at least give you a bit of confidence in what you were doing? Again, it was just the case of I wasn't sure that in five seconds they'd recognize who it was. Like, I was very confident if, you know, they hit my entrance video, the crowd would connect the dots. Because it wasn't that long after um, the New Blood Rising pay-per-view in WCW. And again, if you weren't watching, you may not be aware of it as much. But we did a pay-per-view in Vancouver when I had all three belts with the Canadian flags on them. And I was just ridiculously over like the place just you know full of signs and we're going crazy so i was confident that in canada i would get a really great reaction if i was introduced as lance storm from canada <laughs> but without that introduction there was that little moment of i hope they recognize me or i'm toast because i could just see the production meeting i guess it would be a post meeting uh post-production meeting afterwards where if I didn't get a reaction, there would be that, well, this kid isn't even over at his hometown, and it's like, I'm done. So uh, thank you to the Calgary crowd that, that popped really big for me. Keeping your career alive. Yeah, <laughs> um, really. what, I'm, what I'm always interested in is, like, obviously, as fans, we've all got our own theories and our own ideas, and we, we think we know why things did or didn't happen or did or didn't work. But as somebody on the inside who was a part of the invasion, why do you think it didn't really have the impact that, that it should have done? Because on paper, it's, it's a great story. It's a great angle. It's a great idea. But obviously, you know, there's been documentaries about the invasion and how it didn't really hit the heights that, that we all expected. So why do you, from being there at that time, why do you think that was? Um, I think there was three basic flaws that... I don't know, killed it's a bit of a stretch, but had it to not work. And I, I think the one was no one was established as the home team babyface or heel. Like us coming in and invading had the rebellious outsider thing, which is always kind of cool. Hmm. And we weren't painted strictly as heels. We weren't painted as baby faces. And I remember one point in time early on, we were doing a segment and Jericho even said to me, he's like, who are the baby faces here? It's like, because when you're constructing angles, matches and everything, it's like to know what you're supposed to do. It's like, it's to get a certain specific reaction. And it's like, if we don't know, are the crowd is supposed to cheer this happening or not, you change the way you do things. So that confused issues. I think the other thing too, is once they couldn't get us on a different separate show, where it's like, once we're all just showing up and wrestling on the same show, it doesn't feel like outsiders anymore. Yeah. But I, I think, too, yeah. the, the big key, and it was that, you know, I sort of jokingly call it as the day that it died, was when it became Vince McMahon versus Shane and Steph. Yeah. Like, yeah. if Paul Heyman had remained, like, when, when we did the alliance with the ECW thing, which is a really cool angle. I thought that was the best angle done in the whole invasion, that one moment where the guys that were in WWE that were actually former ECW guys turned and joined us WCW guys. If Paul Heyman had remained, like, when he jumped up from the announce desk and got in the ring, if he remained the spokesperson of the ECW crew, and if we had Eric or Ric Flair, like Bischoff or Flair, yeah. Yeah. as the 
head instead of Shane McMahon. I think at that point, it could have been so much bigger because it wasn't at that point McMahon versus McMahon. It was actually WCW, ECW, because no one's more associated with the ECW brand. I hate that term, but that's what it is. Than <laughs> Paul Heyman. It was like, it was his baby. And as far as the Monday Night Wars go, which is what anyone cared about at that point in time, Bischoff was, you know, the, you know, it was his brainchild. It was his thing. Or you could go with Flair, because, again, I think when you think WCW, Flair is the most associated name as the, you know, the greatest champion of, of that company. So it's like, I think if you had either of those two and Paul feuding with Vince, then I think the invasion, even if we didn't have a bunch more big name stars, which obviously would have helped. Um, I think those were the keys. Yeah, absolutely. I think fans fans have just sort of settled into that thing of, oh, if Hulk Hogan and Sting and Goldberg were there, it would have been great. But I, I don't necessarily think it, it, it would have been. I don't think Goldberg particularly would have fit that sort of rebellious sort of feel that you guys had when you first came in. And I completely agree about how it became more about the McMahons. So that sort of made it feel like it wasn't really a WCW thing anymore. It sort of forgot about WCW and all of a sudden it was just a WWF storyline. It, it sort of felt like WCW, unfortunately, were just sort of like um, a side note to that, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah, because the, the alliance with Shane and Steph just didn't have the same thing. Now, obviously, you know, had they had the Goldbergs and the Flares and the Stings, it certainly would have been bigger. And then you've also got the possibility that, because one, again, when you're looking at all the minor elements, they didn't put many of us over on WWE guys. And again, I, I don't really blame them because, you know, myself and, and Hugh Morris, it's like, we weren't exactly rock Austin level. We just weren't, you know what I mean? Yeah. Where, so it's like, I wouldn't have, you know, me come in and lay out the rock either, but if they had, you know, whether it be Kevin Nash or Scott Hall or, Goldberg it's like then it's different because they were much bigger stars Sting as well <clears throat> so it again we didn't have the big stars we didn't have the leadership it didn't have the actual image there's a lot of elements but again I, I really think if it was Eric and Paul as the evil alliance against Vince McMahon that I think it could have had some some real legs to it yeah just just from you literally just saying those words of of um, Eric and Paul as the Evil Alliance. It just sounds good. It just sounds intriguing. It sounds fun. It sounds exciting. It sounds like sort of what WWF were going for at that time in terms of edginess and, and things like that. Um, I want to go back to what we were saying right at the start about how obviously it happened in Canada. You're a, a Canadian legend in terms of wrestling. Um, what, what I've always been interested in and, and some of the guys in my sort of like podcast community, Canadian podcasts, they often talk about this stuff, but I don't really know a lot about it. Is is it challenging getting out of Canada as a wrestler? Because I know that there's there's like green cards and visas and all that kind of stuff, isn't there? Why why is it so challenging just to become a wrestler in the first place and break into America? And do you think it ever puts puts younger people off from getting into the business? Because it, it sounds from what I've spoke to people, it sounds like a bit of a a minefield just to get over the line it is a really big hurdle i don't think it puts anyone off because i don't think people realize that hurdle exists until you're in <laughs> and then it's like oh, oh right. crap <laughs> but and it's worse now than it was in my day because 
again, we legally need to have a work visa to go to the U.S. to wrestle. And with Canada being so spread out and not having the population, there isn't as many opportunities to be on a field that people are going to notice. You can, you know, you can wrestle in Calgary Indies and Vancouver Indies, and it's like, you might do well, but not that many people are going to see you. So if you can get to a U.S. place, but indie companies don't have the funds to get you a visa. So you have to be noticed by AEW, WWE. Um, Pre-pandemic impact was a nice uh, way to get your foot in the door because they did tapings in Windsor, Canada quite a bit. So Canadians would have that chance to at least get their foot in the door with impact without needing a visa. And then if you did well enough there, they might get you the visa so you can do all their tapings. But it's hard. And not that I'm advising people to break the rules, but that was generally what everyone had to do is cross the border without saying why you're going to work on some smaller shows to get noticed. And in my day, it wasn't as bad because it was pre-internet. So no one at customs is going to know that there is an indie promotion. They're not going to know who you are as Joe Indy, but today because of social media and the internet and i i've i've talked to people that do this or have had this happen where let's say i'm booked on you know i'm trying to think of an indie now i'm i'm blanking you know jersey all pro if that's still a thing they could bring me in but it's like if they want to bring me in they're going to advertise me and promote me and they're going to expect me to do the same on twitter and facebook and so forth and if i go to cross the border they're going to ask me why I'm going. And if I don't have a visa, I can't say I'm going to wrestle. So I'm going to have to make up an excuse, but they can check your phone. And it's like, they, and then I've, I've heard that they do, they ask to check your phone and they will check your social media. And it's like, well, if your Facebook page comes up and it says, Hey, come watch me wrestle (laughs) at Jersey all pro Saturday night. It's like you're busted and they can, they can just deny you entry and say, go home. You're not letting in, but they can flag your thing and give you, I think it's a five-year ban. Wow. And you can't go to the States for five years and like wow. not to vacation, not for anything. So it's like, it pretty much kills your career yeah. because, okay, so I can't get my break for another five years. That's pretty heavy. So it's a real issue now i have known a few people that have gotten tagged with that and have paid big money and gotten lawyers and gotten it removed but it's a really big obstacle that if i was breaking in now as a canadian it's like i would be really leery of now the wwe with developmental now again it's a little bit better in that assuming they start touring in canada again at least when they did TV in Toronto or Ottawa or Montreal or wherever they might do shows, if you can get booked as an extra, they can see you. If you happen to get scouted, they will invite you for a tryout and that you don't need a visa for. So then you have the potential of getting signed to developmental, you know, um, Tyler Breeze was one that did that. He never, I don't believe worked in the States, but he did well enough in Canada 
that he went to a couple tryout camps for developmental. They saw him, liked him, got him his visa, and he's off and running. I think he's got a green card now. But it is a really big obstacle. And that's where, again, I was lucky that I got the break in Europe, then I got the break in Japan before I got DCW. So I had built up a bit of a name. And again, I, th I think statute of limitations is probably over. My first few times in ECW, I didn't have a visa. But Paul did eventually get me the visa. And, you know, Cornette had to get me the visa for Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And that was, again, fortunate enough. I just sent him a videotape and some pictures. And he was impressed enough that uh, he was willing to process and, and get me a visa. So were they, were they quite expensive? Like I say, I, I don't really know too much about how that all works. Was it? Was it more expensive back then to get one than it is now, or was it the other way around? It's funny in that the first company that made me pay for my visa was WWE. Smoky Mountain oh, just paid for and got me my visa. I'm like, sweet. And when Paul got me my ECW visa, they just got me my visa, and I have no idea what it costs. WCW got me my visa. When I got to WWE, they processed my visa, and then they docked my pay for the cost of the visa it's just like you're the big rich company it's like and i think it was five grand oh wow i think and i think wow. they took like a thousand dollars off my check you know every month once yeah. a month for five months or something but yeah. i'm pretty sure it was five grand and it was a three-year visa and and oddly enough my my last stint with WWE as a producer which didn't last long you know thanks to the pandemic they did pay for my visa and didn't dock me for that one. So I don't know whether they, they cover everyone's now or whether the fact that this was an office job is different than a yeah. talent job. But uh, yeah, I only had to pay for one and it was five grand. And I remember too, now it just, it just reminded me, I was really annoyed that I had my WCW visa, which was a three-year visa. And I'd only used one year on it. So I had two years remaining. And when I dealt with the lawyers that got, because I had to provide information, they said the visas are transferable as long as you're in the same field. So my visa through WCW would be valid to work in WWE. Yeah. But WWE said, no, we don't want to use yours. We want to get our own. And then they billed me for it. And I'm like, but this one's <laughs> still valid. I don't want to pay five grand. But... Again, in the grand scheme of what I made over the next, you know, four, four and a half years, whatever it was in WWE. Yeah. Actually, I, my, they might have got me a five year because I was there more than three and I didn't have to get another one with them. So it probably was a five year that they got me for the five grand. Hmm, that's interesting and sort of surprising, but not surprising at the same time with, with Vince wanting to do his own. With his own. That just sounds very Vince McMahon, doesn't it? Always having to be in control. Like, no. You've got to use the visa that I give you. That's we're not using a WCW visa, pal. <laughs> no, why would he bought WCW out? So of course he wants to use his own. Um, <laughs> um, I'm glad that you mentioned obviously your, your recent stint in WWE because I wanted to ask about that. Um, obviously you joined. Well, I think it was it was November 19, wasn't it, when you went back to WWE? Yeah, the and then, December. Yeah, and then you were only there for sort of like five or six months before they. They furloughed you like so many of us were furloughed. And then it was only shortly, I think a couple of months after that, that you were actually released. Obviously, obviously it was COVID and there was only sort of so much anger you can have when it's sort of out of your control and out of people's control. But how frustrating was it for you to have 
been there for such a short amount of time and not really had much time to really put a stamp on things yourself um and and has it put you off potentially going back in a similar role again in the future to WWE again I ha- I have no ill will towards WWE they they did what they had to do and I like again I still technically I could there's legal loopholes to cross the border and so forth but up until recently it's like my wife wouldn't have wanted me to travel and neither would I so it's yeah. like they couldn't employ me and you're a bit off on the furlough then then let go because I was just technically let go because again at the end of the day there's no real difference between furloughed and being fired it's just if you're furloughed they say they will bring you back and technically you know johnny did when he called me and said you know sorry you're one of the guys being let go did say you know hopefully when this thing goes you know away we'll be able to bring you back so it's like but again because i required a visa to go back to wwe I had to have a different contract than others doing the producer role because they can just hire them. They don't need a contract with, you know, all of this multi-year stuff because they had to have that to get me a visa. So in order to furlough or fire me, they have to terminate the contract because they can't just not honor the contract and pay me if the contract's in. So they did technically have to, terminate my contract to stop paying me so again i started in december i was i worked for four months so december january February, march it was it was march 10th actually so it was a little less than four months i guess that i was actually going to work i was just getting ready to do wrestlemania and i was really annoyed that we didn't get a chance to follow up i was looking forward to mania week but so i did you know three and a half months of working and then because it was even before they made the call when Canada put in the travel advisory of do not go to the States unless absolutely necessary. We're close, you know, we're advising you to not travel. That's when I called my insurance company to go, it's like, is my health coverage going to cover me if I go to the States? And they said, no, that we're advising against traveling. We won't insure you. So if you go to the States and get COVID that's on your own dime. And at that point, I'm like, well, shit, if I get hospitalized, it's like I could, especially in the States, it's like without insurance, it's like I could blow my entire retirement fund. So I called Johnny, uh, John Laurinaitis, because he was my, he was the head of the producers, the guy that hired me. And I just told him, it's like, I'm not comfortable traveling. He's like, yeah, don't worry about it. Just stay home. Well, at the time it seemed reasonable. It's ridiculous now. It's like, stay home for the next two or three weeks and we'll reassess. And so I'm like, thanks, John. And I stayed home, but it was one or two weeks later that we got the news that things are really shutting down and they were, you know, furloughing a bunch of talent. And, you know, Johnny called me back at that point and said, you know, sorry, you're one of the guys getting furloughed slash let go. And I'm like, well, I'm not surprised I can't come to work. So, (laughs) and thankfully I get, I was very lucky in that because of my contract the way it worked out i got the 90 days yeah so i and again so it's like i worked for four months and then i think there was a month that i was just left home before they decided to furlough everybody so i and then they terminated me and then i got three more months so i was employed or at least paid for eight months even though i only did like three and a half months of work and so that's where it stands now 
again, I have no ill will towards WB. They did what they had to do. And if they, assuming all that goes back to normal, called me again, I would consider it. But it's difficult in that I had been home for 14, almost 15 years with my school. And then I went back for that three and a half months. And it was a real hard adjustment for my wife and my family life because I'd been home for 15 years and now I'm gone. And what really sucks is I was working almost every TV because I was training still. So I was doing almost double the normal schedule. So I wasn't home much at all for those three months. And my training had just ended. So my schedule was going to lighten up and go to what it was supposed to be. And I was going to be able to go, oh, okay, now I can relax and settle in. And then I got let go. So I've been home now for another year and a half. I don't know if my family can deal with another adjustment of going back to that schedule again. So um, we will see once, uh, once things are fully opened up, what I actually decide to do, I have no idea. But again, uh, John Laurinaitis in particular and WWE on the whole treated me really well and, and were, they were as good as they could be to me under the circumstances. So, yeah, It's refreshing to hear that as well because you hear so many horror stories and people come out after being released and just talk so much crap about the company but it's refreshing to hear someone say that they did what they had to do you know people are constantly trying to paint WWE as the bad guy the evil guy Vince doesn't care but you know, this this was something unprecedented. Nobody expected, nobody could have ever predicted what was going to happen. Nobody had really lived through anything like this before, so nobody really knew how to deal with it. So I think, as you say, given the circumstances, WWE really did the best that they could. I know that a lot of guys have been brought back since, and backstage people have been brought back since. So, you know, you, you can tell that they didn't want to do what they've done, furlough, release, whatever it might be. Um I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned I, in there. But just, just to that, too. And, and I think, too, that like Johnny Ace and I, John Laurinaitis, we go back a long way. Like, I first dealt business wise with John Laurinaitis in 1994. Huh. He was with All Japan, and Chris Candido had done a tour with All Japan when we were in Smoky Mountain. And they, they were going to bring him back for the World Tag Team, World Tag League tournament in all Japan in the, I think it was probably either December 94 or January 95, whatever month they did the tag tournament. And I was going to be Chris Candido's partner. So I was talking to John Laurinaitis back late 1994 about going to all Japan. So we had had phone call conversations back then and dealt with each other. And then his first day in WCW was my first day in WCW, and he agented my first segment. So Johnny and I were like this, and again, I don't know if you're using the video or not, but I'm crossing my fingers. Um, <laughs> we were like this. We were tight throughout the full WCW run because he was agenting my segments and was behind a lot of my push in WCW. And then when I went to WWF with the Invasion, John was the go-between talent relations guy that dealt with all the WCW guys. So it's like, I've always been in a good working relationship with Johnny. And when I talked to him the first time about going back as an agent, again, it was a really good relationship. He was open. He was honest. He told me where everything stood. So when he calls me and tells me what's what, it's like, okay, I accept that because, you know, we've got a good relationship and I believe that, you know, if it was his call, 
he'd uh, done his best to keep me and look after me and he always has so I don't know. There's there's no point in having ill will because it is what it is. Yeah, yeah. It's good to hear, like I say, and there's no point in having that ill will because then that puts sort of drives a wedge between you and that opportunity could come back up to, to go back. But if you're one of those guys that's gone out there and talked crap about the company and burnt that bridge, you know, like we've seen so many do, is it really worth it? Um what I was going to say was um you, you mentioned in there about about your um your school, about your wrestling school. Um We've seen over the years, even even really recently, loads of loads and loads more wrestlers now are starting to to um, start up their own schools, even if they're still wrestling at the moment. I know it was sort of it seems more like the kind of thing you would do when it comes to the end of your career, once you've retired and kind of give something back to the industry. I know guys like um, Tyler Breeze, who you mentioned before, he's he's got his own school at the moment. I think it's with Xavier Woods um, and Ty Dillinger. Um, what was it for you that made you want to start up a school in the first place? Was it just a case of you liked training or you wanted to give something back or or just to keep busy? What was it that appealed to you about doing it? Well, I've always enjoyed teaching. Like, go all the way back to 1991. Like, I taught the Hart Brothers Pro Wrestling Camp in 91 and 92, which is a bit absurd because I trained with them in 90. But that was the, the their model in that they weren't going to get in the ring and do anything, but they ran a school. So they would pick a standout student from a previous class that was still local and have him do all the in-ring instruction. Well, I did that in 91 and 92, and I liked it and thought, found I had an aptitude for it. So fast forward 14 years, when I was unsatisfied with my creative direction in WWE and looking for other options, Jim Ross asked if I'd be willing to teach their developmental system. And I'm like, okay. And we negotiated schedule and money. And I'm like, okay, this could be, you know, a, a, a better option than where I was on the roster. So I accepted the position to teach the developmental system. So I ran the OVW developmental system for about a year and a half. Again, I think it was a little less than that, but approximately. And when I was negotiating my new contract they had just started deep south and we were debating on whether they'd have me do they'd have a specific trainer in each place but i would go back and forth and we were again schedule and money we weren't on the same page and danny davis who ran ovw he was the one that says why don't you just run your own school back in calgary it's like you wouldn't have to travel at all and it's like, you'd probably really enjoy it. And I just like, damn, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> so I spoke to my wife and she liked the idea of me getting the hell off the road. So I called Johnny back again and just said, because we were back and forth. It's like, he'd make an op, we counter and counter. And I just uh, called him back and said, you know, disregard my last offer. I'm done. He's like, what do you mean? I was like, I've decided I'm just going to go home and open my own school. And he's like, oh okay and so i came home and opened my own school and uh, that's the if again if you're using the video portion that's the uh, photograph behind me i'm not actually there i don't have the school anymore i've got a green screen but and you know danny davis was the one that hooked me up with all of the wwe posters and banners and stuff because as a developmental territory he had a lot of that stuff and extra stuff left over so 
I came home and opened up my school and ran it for about 14 and a half years. And again, this is the, there's a lot of people that, again, people like to complain, but they were, you know, WWE is evil when they let me go. Cause it's like, man, they made him close his school and then they fired him. And it's like, no, I decided to close my school. <laughs> and I called WWE to see if there was interest in me coming in because I was wanting to close my school. And so it wasn't them, you know, making me close my school. I decided to close it and reached out and they were eager to bring me back and did. And again, in hindsight, I'm fortunate because about two thirds of my students each session were international. So if the pandemic hit while I still had my school, my school would have been shut down. I wouldn't be able to run at all. And I'd have the lease on that building and all those expenses where I had got out of my lease, which again was not cheap, you know, it was a, it was a big building. So I got out of my lease and I had a second house that I housed students in. And I had managed to sell that before the pandemic and the real estate market hit too. So I got out from underneath that, um, which actually was a, a you know, the, the blessing in, in disguise really that uh, shutting the school down before the pandemic really saved my butt. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like it did. Yeah. Um, of of all, all the, the guys and the girls that you trained, who are, who are like some of your favorite to work with? I know you, you, you worked with or trained guys like Dolph, didn't you? Dolph Ziggler and, um, and Tyler Breeze, as you mentioned before, you worked with those guys. Yeah. Dolph was when I was teaching developmental. Yeah. And of all the people I worked with in developmental, there was a lot of them. Dolph Ziggler and Bobby Lashley are the only two that I sort of lay claim to as someone I trained because they weren't professional wrestlers when I got to them. Um, Ziggler was actually, they sent him to OVW to train with me for like a couple of weeks where I was to evaluate him and then, you know, tell the office whether they should hire him or not. And Bobby, they had signed, and I think he was only a couple weeks in when I got there. So it's like they, I feel like I trained them to wrestle where like Mickey James was in developmental and I obviously coached her a lot during that time, but it's like, she was a very competent, good professional wrestler. When I got there, she was having matches. She was doing things where Dolph and Bobby had their first match under my watch. So I lay claim to them. Yeah. Breeze was an early, early on guy. And again, I don't like picking favorites cause there's a ton, <laughs> but Again, there's a lot, you know. Well, again, Taya Valkyrie is just in NXT now as Frankie Monet. Um, hell, Impact's got three former female students now. They've got Chelsea Green, Rachel Ellering, and Tennille Dashwood there. Um, Clark Connors is doing great in, in New Japan Strong now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's there's a lot. Actually, the, the one who's actually become probably my best friend because he's still local. And he's someone that I think the industry really missed the boat on uh, a guy by the name of Chris Knight. Uh, he's an Australian guy. He lives in, he's got a citizenship now and lives here, but he's a big dude. He's like, you know, my height, you know, 240. And he, he came close and they really missed the boat in that there was a TV taping here in Calgary. And I got him in as an extras, a few others, Taya as well, uh, Frankie Monet. And I remember at the time they, they weren't hiring or, uh, they weren't booking women as extras at the time. So when they called me with, hey, we're doing a TV taping in Calgary, you have some students who want to get in as extras. And I'm like, named like four or five guys. And I said, I'd, I'd like you guys to take a look at um, Kira was her real name at the time. 
uh, Ty of Valkyrie. And they're like, well, we don't really use women as extras. And I'm like, would it kill you too? I think you should look at this woman. <laughs> so after a lot of arguing, he finally, okay, fine, Booker is an extra. And so they looked at her and they really looked at Chris Knight a lot. He had like, you know, five matches in the afternoon, um, you know, had him in a tag, had him as a heel, had him as a baby face. He wrestled the Usos a ton in the afternoon. And they sent him for promos and William Regal, who was the uh, talent, I guess he still is to a certain extent, talent evaluator guy. He came to me and said, I'm going to give him the recommendation to hire him because I, you know, they liked getting people from all different countries. And he's like, we don't have an Australian. I don't think we're going to find one bigger or better than this guy. I'm going to recommend they hire him. So I'm like, great. And he had also, Chris had been an extra before and they were busy and he never really got a chance to talk to Johnny, who was the head of talent relations at the time. And I remember when they were in Edmonton, because it was Calgary Edmonton TV, Chris told me, he's like, I'm not leaving until I have a chance to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Johnny Ace. I'm like, okay. And so he hung out uh, in Johnny Ace's, like outside Johnny Ace's office. He's like, I'm not leaving until I talk to this guy. And I guess he actually knocked on his door and went in and had a word with, with, with Johnny. So when he told me this, I'm like, you know, again, fingers crossed because there's no right answers to anything. And when you do that, hey, I'd like to talk to you, there's two ways someone can take it. It just depends on their mood at the time. It's the, hey, that really takes balls. I respect that you're an advocate for yourself and you stood up and had confidence and you came in and talked to me. Or there's the, who the hell do you think you are? I'm busy. You're a, you're a damn extra. So I'm like, oh man, it's, it's like, is, is this the thing that's going to put him over the top or the nail that's going to go into his coffin? And then later that day, I'm in catering and Johnny comes over. He says, oh, that, you know, Chris Knight kid of yours, he came in and talked to me. And I was like, okay, what did you think? What did he say? Took guts. I like that. And I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> and so I'm at this point figuring he's going to get signed. <laughs> and um, I think later that day or the next day, I don't remember, they, um, they called Kira and told her they were hiring her for developmental. And I'm like, awesome. And I'm like, okay, Niter's got to be next. He's got to be next. And then at the time, I don't, I, th I think it was Ty Bailey was the head of developmental at the time. Now it's Canyon Seaman. And before they got the paperwork done on Taya, and I think, I think Knight was in the process as well. I think they were going to call him. I don't know that for sure, but Regal put him over. Johnny put him over. I put him over. Ty Bailey got released oh, yeah. and they, stopped everyone that was in the process with Ty Bailey and Taya, uh, Frankie Monet, her contract got pulled. They actually FedExed it to her house, but before she got home from the gym to pick it up, they retra retracted it and got it sent back and she what? missed her opportunity. And, and that's why this run now means so much to her because there's a, a long journey going to Mexico and getting where she intended to go in the first place. But I do believe Chris Knight fell through the cracks at that moment. And I think it was a, a real miss by the industry because he's a super talented guy. And I've wrestled him two or three times on actual shows. I think three times now I, I've actually wrestled him on shows. We did one, which was a lot of fun. Uh, local here, Edmonton, they booked the Dudleys to come in as a tag team. And then this was when they did the split in Impact where Bubba and Devon were feuding. Cool but they were a team when they booked it and then they broke up before the appearance. So Bubba called him and said, I don't want a team with Devon. I don't want to go against the angle and impact. Can we do 
you know, two of your local guys, I'll team with one, Devon will team with one. So the promoter called me and said, would you be one of the partners and team with one of the Dudleys and we'll do someone else? And I'm like, as long as it's Chris Knight, because he's awesome worker, I trust him completely. And I thought it'd be a good experience for him. So we did Bubba and Chris Knight against me and Devon. Uh, Devon and I were the baby faces. And we did that. And it was, it was just so much fun because he's, he's such a great worker. What happened to him straight afterwards? Did he not get picked up by anywhere else, like Impact or Ring of Honor or anywhere like that? Well, again, then you get into that crux, especially because he was an Australian in Canada at the time on a, a visa. It's very easy for Australians to get to visas in Canada because of the Commonwealth connection. So it's like he couldn't go to the States and work anywhere to get noticed. And WWE is the only one that's coming to Canada. So it was just sort of hard that he never connected those dots and got the break. Yeah. And it just sometimes timing can be everything or can suck real bad. And I, I just think he was a real missed opportunity. And again, he's still young enough to get it, but he's again, with the pandemic, it's even worse, but again, he's got a son now here in town. I don't know 100% if he'd even want to uh, embark on a full-time career again at this point. I don't even know the name. I've never heard the name. I'll have to, I'll have to look him up and see if I can find something. It sounds, sounds good. Is, is he on, is any of his stuff on YouTube or anything for, for people to look up? probably some I, i'm not entirely yeah, sure because um, the the local uh prairie wrestling alliance pwa um is the company up here that he worked for the most mm. but i don't know how much of their stuff would be on youtube but uh yeah i've wrestled them three or four times and always enjoyed it mm, he ended up so actually the last i don't know, god maybe four years um i got to the point where he, he'd come in two two days a week uh with my school when i was still running it to help demonstrate and help reduce my bump load and stuff so when i was demonstrating moves we would get to demonstrate them and help reduce my bump taking when you know it's time for everybody else to do hip tosses it's like instead of me taking the first one i'd have chris do it for me so um he ended up being a hell of a a, a second for me in that regard he's a real top-notch worker hell of a trainer too actually hmm. interesting i'm gonna I, 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 as soon as we're done here today i will look him up just out of curiosity um I want to come back to something you said earlier, um, Smoky Mountain. I know Smoky Mountain was was a fairly short-lived thing. It was only really around for sort of about four or five years, if my memory serves correctly. Um, what what was your time there like? What was it like working with Jim Cornette or working for Jim Cornette? Because obviously he's a very um, controversial figure. Spirit, obviously, spirited. Some, I think is a, a yeah, a... spirited, passionate. We'll say passionate. Um, some people love him. A lot of people seem to hate him. I don't think they really know why. I think it's the whole, just the persona that he has online and on social media. But what, what were your experiences with, with Jim like? I really enjoyed it because I was a big fan of the Midnight Express. I was a big NWA, WCW fan. So Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express were something, someone that I was a big fan of. So then getting to come in and work a tag team program with, Jim Cornette, he was managing the Heavenly Bodies at the time, not the Midnight Express, but it was still really cool in that regard. And then it was really the, and it was, I'm so grateful that I got the chance in that it was the only real traditional wrestling territory that I worked. That was like an old school territory where you did, you know, TV once a month that was primarily squash matches and angles to hype the live events. And then you would do the 15 shows a month where you hit all the regular house show towns 
and it was a very traditional old school territory. So it was nice to experience that because when I broke in was really the start of the death of the territories. So it was the only real authentic territory style run that I got. So I really enjoyed that. And I learned a lot because again, I think the biggest thing that I learned there was you're not doing the wrestling match for you. You're doing it for the audience because both Chris and I, you know, he was working in Mexico. We had both done a trip to Japan. I had just got back from Europe. We were trying to be that, you know, cutting edge new, we got to do all this new stuff. We got to do all this. And it's like, that's all great, but we were working Harlan, Kentucky and they weren't seeing new Japan junior heavyweight style. They weren't seeing Lucha Libre. So us just trying to do these great matches that we were marks for wasn't what the audience wanted. So it was a good learning experience of, okay, I can do a little bit of the stuff I want, but at the end of the day, I'm getting paid to entertain the people in the seats. I need to deliver the product they want. And it really taught me to listen to my audience. And yeah. as far as Jim Cornette and Hothead, like it takes a lot to offend me. So I enjoyed working with Jim Cornette because I didn't get offended when he yelled at me and called me. How's our language restrictions on this? Are we no, okay? no, go ahead. Go ahead. So I didn't get offended when Jim Cornette is screaming. It's like, ah, you stupid bumble fuck, you goddamn son of a bitch. It's like, <laughs> I didn't get offended at that. Yeah. But once Jim gets the rage out of his system, because he is very passionate and Smoky Mountain was his baby. I realized that once you got rid of all of that, there was a lot of good advice there. So I was willing to sit there and listen to him throw a monitor and scream and yell and call me a mouth-breathing, knuckle-dragging, stupid bumblefuck for the stuff afterwards. Yeah. So I enjoyed that, and it was a really great learning experience. So I value my time there a lot. It was really great, and I had a lot of fun. But like you say, it was only 10 months. Yeah. Yeah, really short-lived. Um you you mentioned in there about how you know you 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 listen to the listen to the audience, listen to the crowd, and listen to the fans, and try and give them what they want. Um, and that makes me think of something. I don't know if you saw. I think it was only only in sort of like the last month or so, the last month or two. Um, did you see Bruce Pritchard's comments about you recently? About how um, he said that you were incredibly talented, one of the most talented ever of all time, to actually do it in the ring and, and put on a great match, a great technical match. Um, but he said that he always thought that the reason that you didn't make it any further or go any higher up the card or win any any major, major gold in WWF was because of your lack of charisma, lack of personality. Like, what, what do you make of that? Because I, I honestly, when I think of that era, that period, obviously we think of Rock, we think of Austin, we think of Hogan, etc., all those names. But you are, you are a guy that comes into my mind because I was always a fan. So you... Do you think that that's something that ever held you back, like a lack of character or a lack of personality? Was it ever something that was mentioned to you at the time while you were resting? Well, the thing is, I honestly believe this is the misnomer of people getting worked or believing their own shit. In mm -hmm. that, if you go back and watch my ECW stuff, no one's going to say I had a lack of personality or lack of character and in wcw the particular character that i was doing 
was getting me very over in a very short period of time. When I got to WWE, I was specifically told and instructed to have no emotion, no personality, and be a <laughs> robot. I was specifically told that their vision for me was Sam the Eagle from the Muppets. And when I did promos in, WC in WWE, I was constantly told to do retakes because you're not flat enough. You're not monotone enough. We want you duller. And they would make me do retakes and retakes and retakes because that's what they told me they wanted. Yeah. So that's what I did because I'm a professional. And then it's either a case of one hand not listening to the other or them wanting certain things to fail. Or I, th I think it's more one not knowing the other that someone had a vision of, oh, hey, he's going to be this guy with a stick up his ass and be flat. But after several months of doing flat monotone promos, because that's what they kept telling me. And if I didn't do it flat enough, they'd make me retake it. Jericho came to me one day and said, do you realize you're getting buried in production meetings for being flat monotone on your promos? I just looked at him like, they're making me do this shit. And he's like, oh, well, you're getting buried as not having any personality in the production meetings. And I'm like, well, then they're fucking morons because they're the <laughs> ones telling me to do this. Now, it may be a case of one hand not. And it very well could have been that one writer had this vision for me of Joe Monotone Robot. But then when they're in the production meeting and Vince loses his shit or Bruce Pritchard or whoever with a goddamn, can't this guy have some personality? that writer doesn't want to step up and take the heat and go, actually, I told him to do it that way because then he's going to get yelled at with, that's a stupid idea. Yeah. So that writer could have just said, well, you know, I do what I can with him, but he's got no personality and then you're labeled. Yeah. But even with that, and this is where it's selective memory, in my opinion, <clears throat> if you go back and watch the beginning of the un-American stuff, it's like, it's not the flat monotone guy anymore. Yeah, because yeah. again, that was a Vince McMahon creative vision, and Vince wrote our promos and specifically came to me and asked me how, or told me how he wanted to deliver them, and I would on a couple occasions deliver the promo to Vince backstage before he went out, and they were extremely happy with the promos. Yeah. But selective memory, or again, deciding that it's a good narrative for a podcast they will take that first three month period where I'm out there going splendid. No one enjoys a good joke more than I do. That's <laughs> great. And it's like, wow, what a shitty promo guy. But again, they made me rehearse that five times backstage and kept telling me flatter, flatter, flatter. I'm like, okay. Because I do what I'm told. Yeah. So it's, it's what it is. And again, at least he complimented my work. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's one way of looking at it. Very, very strange comments. It's almost like he's saying you did your job too well. I don't know. But like you say, maybe it's just a narrative because I'm pretty sure he made those comments on um, on something to wrestle with. So, But it, it's maybe. also possible that Bruce was never part of the conversations where they told yeah. me to be flat. Yeah. In which case, then it's, you know, Bruce is just not realizing that that was by design. Yeah. 
And if he was part of those conversations, he either forgets it or just decides it's a better narrative to deliver it this way. Yeah. But yeah, but again, to be honest, it's like when I was in WWE, Rock and Austin were there the whole time. And it's like, even if they're not telling me to do a flat promo, it's like, I'm not going to have a better promo than the Rock and Austin. It's like, <laughs> I wouldn't have put the world title on me in WWF between 2001 and 2004 either. And it's yeah. like, I held every other championship. So it's like, yep. he didn't win major goals. Yeah, I didn't win the world title. And it's like, I wouldn't have put it on me either because Rock, Austin, Jericho, Hunter, Booker were all there at the time. And I'd have pushed those guys over me too. Yeah, but you were you were intercontinental champion, you know, and that's that's my favorite title. Always been my my favorite championship. So it's not like you didn't achieve anything in in WF. And I think you were three or four time tag champ as well. Yeah, the 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 four is, and I I always did it as a rib because Bubba Ray Dudley would always tout how many times he held the championship, and I can technically say four, although realistically it's two, but. I won it with Christian as the Un-Americans. Um, actually, I don't remember the number of years, but it was on this date. Uh, this date in history was when Christian and I beat Hogan and Edge, uh, July 21. But so I won it with Christian, and then I won it with William Regal. <clears throat> but we did a one-day drop to the Dudleys, and we won it back the next day, which was never supposed to happen. We got to the Royal Rumble in, I'm guessing, 03, and I think Dean Malenka was our agent and he came to me and it's like, all right, you know, you and William are up. And it's like, I looked at him and I said, can I see the production sheet? And he gave it to me and I looked at it. I'm like, do you realize that every single match on this show is being won by a heel? He's like, really? I'm like, yeah, there isn't a single, like even the rumble winner was a heel. I was like, there isn't a single baby face winning on this show. I'm like, that's rotten. He's like, yeah, you're right. So he left and he came back. He's like, well, he says, you shouldn't have said anything because the Dudleys are beating you now. <laughs> and they put the Dudleys up for the world tag team titles on the Rumble on Sunday. And on Monday, we beat them back because the plan was always for us to keep the titles. <laughs> so there's my third, which really isn't another run. We had a, you know, a 24-hour blip in the middle. <laughs> and then when William Regal got really sick in 03, I guess yeah, only a little while later. <clears throat> it was only a few months later, I think, that William Regal got really sick, leading into WrestleMania 19. We replaced William Regal with Val Venus because Val was, you know, in our corner as a second, so to speak, as the crooked Chief Morley. But with Regal out of the picture, they had to put someone in, and they put Val in. But technically on TV, Val stripped William Regal and I and awarded... Sean Morley and I, the tag titles. So as a rib, I always joked with Bubba. It's like, that's four, that's four. I'm up to four. <laughs> but realistically, I had two tag team title runs and the IC title run, which again is the selective memory thing. Cause so many people will go, Oh man, WWE did nothing with you. And I'm like, really? It's like, I was only on the main roster, I think three and a half years. And I had, you know, two legitimate, tag team title runs and I see title run it's like yeah there was definitely at the end a period of crap but yeah. it's like in the grand scheme of things um certainly could have been a lot worse it's like everywhere I yeah. went I, I basically held 
all the titles but the major one almost everywhere I went. Yeah, yeah. And like I said at the start, like it's you made a hell of a debut. You were a part of the biggest storyline going, you know. So even even if you didn't achieve anything more than that, you were still basically the talk of the town at the time when when was it? It was about about ninety one, wasn't it? Ninety one, ninety, that sort of time. The um not ninety one, sorry, um ninety nine, two thousand, wasn't it? 2001 around that sort of time of the invasion um and yeah you guys were, were the talk of it's still being talked about today people regularly talk about the invasion so you know for me titles titles don't really don't really matter some of my favorite wrestlers didn't hold lots and lots of titles you know people what? i think use that as a measuring stick don't they you have to have won x amount of titles to be one of the greatest but well it's it's funny where again that gets into the time period where again people look at today where almost everybody holds every title yeah yeah that it's like roddy piper never held the big one paul orndorff never held the big one i don't think jake roberts ever held any titles like at least WWE. you know ted dibiase never won the big one it's like in the pre 90, it was probably about 97 where things just went kablooey with the Monday Night Wars, where the title started bouncing all over the place. But there are legitimate Hall of Fame guys that never held the world title. But today, if you don't have multiple world titles, you're not even considered because yeah. it's just it's passed around a lot more. And I was just thinking about the other day. And again, I think AEW does a much better job of having fewer world champions. They've only had three, and they're in business yeah. for like a little over two years now. Yeah. But even with as well as they don't bounce their championship around, it's like fans' perception, fans' thought process now, it's like when Kenny Omega won the title, the question I heard most from wrestling fans is like, well, who gets it next? It's like they don't even think about the Kenny Omega title reign. It's like, okay, who's next? Oh, it'll definitely be Hangman. It's like, well, who after Hangman, who gets it? And it's like, well, when's Jungle Boy going to get his? And it's like where, again, my day as a fan or the beginning half of my career, it's like Hulk Hogan was just the champ the entire time of my fandom. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> when I first found WWF, Hulk Hogan was the champ. And it's like when he lost it, it was like, oh, my God, because it's been years. You know what I mean? And when you consider, you know, Bruno held it for like a decade and Hogan held it for five years. And there was just there was so few people that did where today it's almost like if you don't, you're a failure. And it's just a different perception. And it's, it's just the way it is. And I firmly believe that less is more when it comes to this. And I actually had this conversation with a buddy of mine once because, again, you'll, you'll get people, and I appreciate them because it's a compliment, but they'll be like, oh, man, you should have got a, a world title run in WCW. <laughs> no. It's like I was there 10 months. It's like I did a lot. Now, if I'd have stayed there for another five to eight years, then maybe, sure. Yeah. But if I had the chance to rewrite history and I could give a world title run to – 10 people over history I thought deserved it or take 10 title runs away from history of people that held it. I would take 10 away rather than give any new ones. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you know, as much as 
again, I think Paul Orndorff could have been a great world champion. It's like, I wouldn't give one to him if I could, again, erase the Vince McMahon, the Vince Russo, the David Arquette, the, you know what I mean? And there's a lot of others where it's just one and two day runs. And again, I love the guy, but it's like Dolph Ziggler is a two-time world champion. It's like, I don't think anybody, when they think of Dolph Ziggler, think former world champion. No, 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 you're right. No, I think Jack Swagger is a two-time former world champion in WWE. It's like, and and that's where too, and again, maybe I'm wrong because I'm obviously biased to myself. It's like, I consider myself as having a bigger run in WWE than Jack Swagger did. Yet he's a two-time former world champion. Yeah. And it's just booking changes and, and money in the bank really while it was an ex- what is is an exciting concept it did create a situation where when you go back and look at the record books it did create a lot of world champions that never would have gotten it otherwise yeah just because they put this brief oh we've got to let them cash in so you know we'll put it on them for a week where you know back when there was a, you know, especially the NWA, there's a big committee meeting and deciding it's like, okay, are we going to put the title back on Ric Flair? Are we going to put it on whoever, you know, the, you know, it, you know, the Ron Garvins and the, the um, Tommy Riches, like those short runs. It's like in the grand scheme of history, I think the history book books would be better or everything would seem more monumental if those short, you know, Kerry Von Eric had it for a couple of weeks. It's like, maybe it was a couple of months, but it's like, those I think aren't as an important part of history as the, you know, back when you could go, it was like, it was Bruno, it was Bob Backlund, it was Hulk Hogan, it was Aaron Sheik. It's like, okay, you know, the, they were the top guy for a period of time. Yeah. 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 I think, like you say, fans, fans just want every, they want everything that they want, but they want it in one go. They want it all at the same time. I get sick to death of seeing, Oh, this guy needs to be pushed. She needs to be pushed. He needs to be pushed. If you if you've got fifteen guys, that you want, yeah, like where where are you pushing them to? What what are they going to be pushed towards? Because you know everybody for years has said Cesaro deserves a world title. I'm like, okay, great, but at the same time, the guy who is world champion is somebody who you've said deserves to be world champion. Like you can't you can't have everything that you want. There's a rhyme and a reason, and I completely agree with Money in the Bank as much as I love that concept they almost put themselves into a corner where they're like, well, shit, this guy has to has to cash in at some point. I think that a really good example is probably Otis. You know, Otis was a really, really surprising decision to be the winner. And then they didn't really know where to go with it after that. And then they just panicked and thought, eh, let's, let's give it to the Miz, get it off and give it to the Miz and, and just quickly brush it under the carpet and, and then forget that it ever happened. Miz held the title for what? It was like a week or two weeks. And he's another one. He's another name that you could drop in the conversation. You you don't think of the Miz as a two-time world champion, much the same as as Dolph Ziggler or, or Jack Swagger. You know, those it, it didn't really feel like like he needed to be champion. It didn't really matter. Well, it, it's it's and this is something too that I'm a firm believer in. It's like to me, unless you are going to be pushed as the top guy, you shouldn't have the world title. And Miz yeah. was never pushed as the guy. You know, his first run, Cena was the guy. It's like Miz may have had the title because they need to do the angle with the rock at WrestleMania, but it's like Cena was the guy. And this last time, it's like Drew McIntyre and Bobby Lashley were 
way and actually you could probably find and this is no shot at miss it's where he was pushed it's like there was probably eight guys above him in the pecking order of who was actually pushed as legitimate top guys when he was the world champion it was just the like like you say it's like otis was really getting popular so i'll be a good pop we'll have otis win and then it's like oh crap now what do we do and it's (laughs) like miz because again miz is a great guy he's the easiest guy in the world to work with he does anything you ever ask him to do so he was a good guy with we'll get it on Miz and we'll figure it out. Cause you know, Miz can always get heat and Miz can always do what we need him to do. So he was that reliable guy, but yeah, I don't think it helps the history books, if you will. And you know, that's the whole thing with it's, it's fans mentality and it's nice, but there's that thing that if you've been around a long time and you work hard, that they think you deserve to be world champion. Mm-hmm. And I remember, uh, friend is a stretch, but again, again, I get a guy I knew in the business a long time when they do that. Oh, but he's a really nice guy. He's like, yeah, my gardener's a really nice guy. It doesn't mean he should be in the wrestling business. And it's like, just because you're a really nice guy and you've worked really hard, you don't deserve to be world champion. Because again, I'm, I don't know if it's old school or just traditional enough. That's like, to me, if you're not around and you don't work really hard, it's like, you don't even deserve to be here. It's like, you know, we don't give the world title to people just because they work hard and had talent. It's like, well, if you don't work hard and have talent, go home and buy a ticket. It's like everyone should be working hard and have talent. And those who get over to that top, top level where, again, Hogan was the top guy. And when he left, Savage was the top guy. And Austin was obviously the top guy. Rock's the top guy. And again, Cena and Roman currently obviously is a top guy, but just because, and again, you know, you mentioned Cesaro, he's a super, super talented guy. And I think too, if you decided to go with him, he could absolutely be a credible, legitimate drawing world champion. But like you say, it's like, not everyone gets the cards they deserve. And again, there's, It's not like there aren't other guys that you could consider. And again, the fact that they have two world championship gets, gets it into more hands than it probably needs to be anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Another guy that jumps to mind is um, Miro Rusev. Obviously he was the most over wrestler probably in the world at one point with Rusev day. It was huge. It was everywhere. It was being chanted outside of wrestling. It was making its way into other sports. And yet he, you know, he was he was selling T-shirts, he was selling merchandise, he was selling calendars. For God's sake, even I, I had a Rusev Day calendar. Um, but he was never given given that shot, was he? Why do you think it didn't work for him when he was as over as literally anybody else in any other any other promotion? I'd have to go back and look at the exact time frame, and I would guess that Cena was still there. Because I know it was Cena that beat him at WrestleMania when he came out with the tank. Yeah. And it, was, it was sort yeah. of the peak of Rusev really going. And there was a lot of fan backlash of, oh, you know, Cena kills another guy. But it, it's that's also at one of the misnomers where fans talk about how WWE doesn't know how to elevate people. It's like, that's not the problem. It's unless you're willing to uh, de-escalate or get rid of your top guys, it's like there's no room at the top. And they weren't willing to get rid of Cena and whoever else was on top in that era. I think Brock was there and I think Seth Rollins was big there at that period of time. And it's like, you know, you had Brock and Seth and Cena and it's like, okay, here's Rusev. It's like, do we move a couple of those guys down to move him in? 
Mm. And he was on fire. And again, I'm a big fan of Rusev. I actually worked with him when he was in developmental. I did a guest training gig in FCW for them when he was in the FCW developmental system and saw a lot in him then. And I think he's a tremendous talent and worker. And I, I think, again, he's one of those guys that I would put in the Paul Orndorff category of absolutely. He's got the talent, the look, the charisma and everything to be that top guy. But whether the stars align that there isn't someone who's just a little bit higher on the pecking order that he never gets there is possible. But yeah. as far as absolutely, because again, if Hulk Hogan wasn't there, Paul Orndorff would have had a run. Yeah. And Rusev could be that guy that he could have a run if that damn hanging page wasn't so over. <laughs> you know what I mean? But again, he's still pretty young, so he could get that run. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, um, you mentioned in there before a few minutes ago, AEW and the fact that they've been going for, as you say, coming up to two years now, they've only had three world champions all with quite lengthy runs. Obviously Jericho was the perfect guy to start that off with because he was an established name and he got eyes on the product, but their, their mid card title, the, the TNT championship and the tag titles, they've done a lot more sort of hot potatoing there same with the us same with the, the intercontinental championship so is it for the mid-card titles do you do you think it's not as important to have established runs and like long title reigns is it just you, you do want that at the top of the card or should it sort of transition all the way through no i i think i i think it's probably better to have the other titles for lack of a different description change a little more often because there is an excitement to that. There's a means by which you can elevate other talent. But I think too, that if the other titles are defended more often and change hands more often, I think it really puts the emphasis on the world title as being different. Mm. You know, we can see the TNT title defended a lot. And I think it makes the world title seem more important. If yes. you really have to get to a certain stage before you even see that playing field. You don't just get a shot at the world champion where yeah. anybody can get a shot at the TNT title. You know what I mean? Get yourself a number one contender spot. You can get a shot at the tag titles. That's great. Mm. But the world champion, like again, Kenny Omega doesn't have singles matches all the time. No. No. I think that's good. Jericho didn't have singles matches all the time. I think that's good that your world champion, when he wrestles in a singles match, it's special. And he only wrestles in singles matches against top guys because he's the world champion. I think that's good. And it makes the, the matchup seem special. And then also, too, it makes the title changes seem special if they aren't done every day. Like, if we'd already had 10 AWA world champions, it's like, would anyone care as much about Hangman Page and Kenny Omega? Like, I don't think so. Like, yeah. the fact that it is a rare achievement makes it mean more. And that's yeah. where when, when Kenny Omita beat Jungle Boy, it's like just the fact that Jungle Boy was one of the elite few that had a world title match in AEW. Like, I don't know. I, we should go back and check someone when they listen to this. Check. It's like, how many people have actually had AEW world title matches? Mm. It's like, that's probably a select few. So the fact that Jungle Boy even made that achievement and it was a very competitive, great match. It's like that elevates them. But if Kenny Omega world champion is wrestling, you know, 
10 of the uh, Dark Order one week and he's wrestling Ryan Nemeth <laughs> another week, it's like he ain't special anymore. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And people people don't understand that because I've seen people complain specifically about Roman Reigns saying, oh, he's, he's turning into Brock Lesnar because he doesn't wrestle every week. I'm like, like, like you just said, you don't want your champion wrestling every week because then they just feel like they're another member of the roster and the way the way they've built Kenny Omega the way they've built Roman to be untouchable undefeatable whoever takes the title off those guys is to the moon immediately aren't they whoever whoever finally manages to break down the great Roman Reigns and and prize that title away from him all of a sudden is is a megastar instantly same for Kenny Omega because he's so hated you know you know, as an example of that, I, I think it's really key. It's like, go back in history. I don't remember the, the exact year, 05-ish, 06-ish, whenever it was, but it's like, JBL as world champion. He had, I think it was about a year. It might be a little less, might be a little over, but he had a 10-month, which at the time was a really long-ass world title run, yeah. before he put over Cena. And it's like, I think that was a key to making Cena seem bigger. A real yeah. elevation for Cena because JBL was the champ for a long damn time and JBL had heat for a long damn time <laughs> that having someone that actually dethrones him. But if it had gone back and forth between eight guys and then the ninth guy is John Cena, it doesn't put that big elevation on John Cena. And I yeah. think JBL's strong run as a very strong, universally dislikable person as world champion, it really helped give them that chance. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I really, really want to ask you about, it's something incredibly recent, and I, I know that you're obviously um, really up to date with what's going on in the industry and AEW and WWE, so I'm sure that you'll, you'll have seen this and know what happened. And I'm really keen to get your opinions on this and thoughts as someone who was so recently working in WWE as a producer. Um, obviously, Karrion Cross. NXT champion, super dominant over the last year. Again, a really good example of not having too many title matches and, you know, building that importance. Um, a couple of dark matches on main event and stuff like that. We knew that he was on the verge of coming to the main roster. And then this week, just a couple of nights ago, made his Raw debut against Jeff Hardy and lost. Lost within like three or four minutes, I think it was. And obviously... The internet being the internet and Twitter being Twitter, everybody has had something to say about it. 99% of those people have not taken it well. Were you aware of that? Did you did you see that it happened? What were your thoughts on that? Did, did you, what did you think of that booking? Because I admittedly, until I thought about it a bit more, I did think it was strange at first. But, I mean, Jeff, 25-year veteran, he had to cheat to win. What, what do you make of, of that? Because it's a, a really big topic of discussion at the minute I, i'm i'm with the 99 percent, to be honest i now granted i didn't watch the show but i obviously saw the results and 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 saw the clip of the finish and it's like i don't just i like i don't agree with it I, I i think that win streaks and being undefeated still has value even in an era where you know so often we're taught that wins and losses don't matter but, you know, the start of Becky Lynch's big run was about seven or eight weeks of just submitting women 
all the time and it led to her title match and then when they tried to turn her after that they got hot and she ended up being like the most over thing the business has seen in a decade and if you remember back you know the cm punk ryback main event on a pay-per-view in a cage it's like it was a big thing because ryback hadn't lost and punk was the champ and I was like, there's still something to that. And the fact that Cross hadn't been beat and was built so monumentally strong in NXT, and I think fans were really getting into Cross Joe, yeah. that just yeah. <clears throat> showing up, and I think more so than even just the loss, it's like there was no issue, there was no anything. It's just, oh, you're wrestling Jeff Hardy. It's like, okay, great. <laughs> and then Jeff Hardy beat him, and it was just like, wow. And, and no offense to Jeff Hardy, it's like Jeff Hardy isn't pushed like a legendary top guy. It's like yeah. a lot of people do beat him. He's not highlighted probably nearly as much as he should because he, you know, there was a period of time, actually it was around 05 again, where yeah. he was like the hottest damn guy in the business mm-hmm. right before he left WWE that first time. So it's like, but I think in today's presentation, Jeff Hardy is not the future of the company and cross had been presented like he could be. And at the very least, I personally feel that if he just squashed three or four guys and then faced Bobby Lashley and got beat by Lashley, it's like, at least it would have been a big moment of, Oh shit, cross and Lashley, this could be good. Hmm. And it just felt like there was a lot of equity lost in that. Yeah. Yeah. And what's even more bizarre is that then the next night he goes back to NXT and is dominant again and lays out William Regal and then has that conversation with Joe again. And it's like, do they want us to just, it's, it's like they really, fans have always said that WWE don't really see NXT as that third brand because they don't really mention it on Raw and SmackDown. They don't allude to things that have happened. They didn't really mention anything that Cross has done in NXT other than him being champion. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, he's back on NXT, back being dominant, carrying Cross. And we're just meant to forget about what happened on Raw, it's it. You know, I mean, it is it's very strange, very strange booking. I don't know. A, a lot of people have said that it's almost WWE sending a message to NXT, and I know a lot of. I read a report that a lot of the guys in NXT are a bit pissed off now because they've done everything they can to build Karrion Cross up, make him look like a dominant monster, and now they feel like they've been disrespected. So it was, you know, I don't think WWE really fought long term. Yeah, and and that's where, and it's, there's so many elements to putting a show together, and and that's where, unless you're there, it's it's hard to judge too harshly, because you don't know how many times a show was rewritten, you don't know how many other plans they have, how many other things Vince is making decisions on, that when someone potentially went to him with well you know what about this nxt thing and it's like he's just busy it's like no that's what i want and it's like it just gets overlooked and it may not be a conscious decision where it's like we're sending a message we're beating carrying cross it might just be an unfortunate agents writers whoever just finished having the 45 minute conversation with vince to get them to do something else they wanted to do and no one got a chance to dot this I and cross this T. And it reminds me of, and Jericho dubbed this early on, the word Yasky, which is why ask why. And it was when you came into a situation 
generally with creative, but with anything in the wrestling business where it doesn't seem to make sense, but you know, you're not going to get an answer anyway, then it's just a yaski. It's like, why ask why there's no answer that's going to make you happy. There may not be one, just shut up and do your job. <laughs> it's like at some point in time, you know, wrestlers do have to do that. And everyone, if you've been in the business long enough, has had that moment where you're just like, what? And it's like, you want to know why, but you're not going to get an answer. And it could just be that there were, you know, 10 issues that day and nine of them got fixed and this one didn't. And I doubt that if we continue to watch that this loss will make sense and play into anything or at least elevate anything. But, yep. you know, Yasky, sometimes shit just happens. <laughs> That should be the tagline for WWE. WWE, shit just happens. Just deal with it. Just forget about it. Don't read too much into it. I just enjoy well, I think, it. I think, I think that's that was the subtle way when they had the um, anything can happen in the WWE. It's like that's that's the equivalent of sometimes shit just happens. <laughs> just accept it. Just enjoy it and stop trying find to a, read find too a much into segment it. Segment you like. Go cheer for Nikki Ash and don't worry about this other thing right now. <laughs> right, um, Lance. This has been a blast, an absolute blast, but I want to end the way that I always do with all my guests, and I like to tailor it around my guests and their background and things like that. So I always ask for my guests, Mount Rushmore. I know it's a it's a very, very typical question. Everybody's been asked a million times. Everybody's got a different answer, and it depends on how you look at the business, if you do it from a popularity standpoint or your favorites or who did the most or blah, 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 whatever it might be. Um, so obviously, I'm going to tailor it to you as your Mount Rushmore of Canadian wrestlers. Um, oh. Mine would be Jericho, Edge, Pat Patterson, and Bret Hart. I feel bad not putting you in there, but um... yeah, I, don't, I don't belong in there. <laughs> yeah, so what see, would yours be? That's a tough, and, and and again, I always one of my go-to's. I always get annoyed when they say, "What's your Mount Rushmore?" It's like, well, Mount Rushmores are important people to the state, so you can only have Americans on it when they try to put other people. But the <laughs> Canadian, again, obviously, it's always biased to your your fandom period of time. You know, yeah. I, I think you have to have Bret Hart. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't have initially thought Pat Patterson because I don't associate him with as a Canadian wrestler, but when you mentioned that name and how important he was both as a wrestler, but more, probably more importantly as just a backbone yeah. genius in the success of WWF and WWE for so many years, it's like, I'm definitely going to put Pat Patterson on there. I'll throw Jericho on there, especially for the longevity period, which leaves yep. me one spot, which makes me want to go further back, but I don't know enough of my history to name further back one. So I'm thinking a little bit more and, you know, I'm going to go with, and again, it's more my time frame, but I'm going to go with Rick Martell. Okay. I'm, yeah. I was always a big fan of Rick Martell and he had a really long career and he had the, you know, the AWA world title run as well as his, his stint in WWE and so forth. I'm going to throw Rick Martell in that mix. Although again, you could probably come up with, other names but hey yeah. i'll go with those four yeah it was hard for me to do those four and i thought that would be easy you know there's, well, there's been so there's also, many levels. but there's also that problem of there's a lot of people that you don't even necessarily realize are canadian because actually i just thought of it now it's like for the monumental moment i probably actually i'll bump rick martell off i'm gonna add ivan koloff 
as the guy yeah. that ended Bruno Sammartino's run. It's like, yeah. I'm 99.9% sure he's Canadian. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to throw in Ivan Koloff, the, the Russian bear, because he was a big deal throughout the year. So I'll, 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 I'll throw the Russian on the Canadian Mount Rushmore. Obviously, I'm not putting Jinder Mahal in my Rushmore, but he's another name people don't realize he's Canadian. I think it's because we're so used to where they're billed from being from. You don't not, you know, it's just one of them, isn't it? Um, Lance, like I said before, I asked that question, man, thank you so much for joining me. This has been an absolute pleasure, a blast, a privilege, an honor. It really has been. Um, before you go, where can everybody find you on like social media? Have you got any channels or anything like that that we can go to? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Lance Storm. I am on Instagram at Storm Wrestling Academy. Um, I offer virtual training. I, I do coaching via Zoom. Uh, so anyone interested in that, there's usually information at the top of my Twitter, but all questions and inquiries about seminars and training and so forth, Training at gmail.com. So you can send me inquiries there about one-on-one -on -one coaching as well as group seminars that I run. But yeah, if you follow me on Twitter, anything I'm doing will eventually appear there and that will best keep you informed as to the the happenings and life of Lance Storm at Lance Storm on Twitter. Cool. And guys, as you, as you know, you know where to find me. It's normally down here somewhere at PWCDs. Everything will be on the link tree at its um, link tree slash it's my house pod. That's where you'll find me. I'm hoping to get back on audio platforms soon at the minute, just YouTube until I can get things sorted out. And that's it again for another episode and a great chat. Lance, once again, thank you so much. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day and take care. And everybody who joined me and everybody who watched today, again, thank you. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.